Well, you know, I think you would agree that every great story has a great ending, right? And that's true of every story. It's a great ending. And this story, which is 100% true, has a great ending. And we're going to look at that ending this morning. The final chapter, chapter 31 of the story, it covers the final chapter of the Bible. That final, or excuse me, that final book of the Bible. And that final book is called Revelation. And the reason it's called Revelation is because it reveals to us how this world is going to end. It reveals to us what happens after our time on earth is over. Now, depending on who you ask today, the book of Revelation is either the scariest book in the Bible or it's the most exciting book in the Bible. So I don't know in this, uh, for you in this service what it would be. Is it a scary book or is it an exciting book? I was talking with a lady here a few years ago, and the, the topic of the book of Revelation came up in our conversation. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She goes, oh, I stay away from Revelation. And I'm like, why? And she goes, that book just freaks me out. And I'm like, I, I, I take that. I'm going, oh, why? Why would it freak you out? I, first of all, let me just say, the book of Revelation is not scary and it's not freaky, whatever she meant by freaky. Revelation is a book of hope. It's a book about, uh, in the Bible, that lets us know how the story ends. And it lets us know that we win. That's what the book of Revelation is about. We win. Jesus returns. Sin ultimately will not prevail. We are introduced to sin at the very beginning. And, and it lets us know sin does not win. Believers get the last laugh. And the enemy of all enemies, and we've encountered him many times in this story, Satan, who tempted Eve in the garden, opened up the door to sin. That guy, Satan, gets destroyed. That's what Revelation is all about. Now, I'm kind of a Lord of the Rings fan. Anybody in here like the, the movies Lord of the Rings? They're some of my favorite. Yes, all nine hours of those movies. I love them. And they're, they're split up over three movies. And, and there's, over the course of the entire movie, if you've seen it, there's this great evil that just covers the land. And that evil has a name. It's the Dark Lord Sauron. And for thousands of years has wrecked havoc and created darkness all over the land. Well, in the movie... In one of the final scenes, the Dark Lord Sauron gets destroyed. And it's this incredible um, moment that I couldn't even begin to imagine how they captured it um, for the movies. But Dark Lord Sauron, who's represented by this giant eye in the sky that's ever watching the evil in the world, at the very end, goodness prevails, and he comes crashing down in this great explosion. And when you've been watching the movie for the first time, you're like, finally, he gets it. It's over. Good wins, and evil is destroyed in this massive explosion, and everyone is saved. I mean, it's just this powerful powerful, powerful scene at the end of the movie. Well, I want you to know that you know what? When King Jesus returns, Satan, the ultimate evil in our world, will be cast into the lake of fire, and it will be more spectacular than any movie could ever depict on the big screen. That's what Revelation is about. We when Satan gets destroyed and we get to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. Revelation is not freaky, it's victorious. Here's, here's how it starts. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. It's a victory book that gives us just a little glimpse, I would say just a little nibble of what heaven will be like. We receive the book of Revelation through a disciple named John. This is one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. Um, He is the only disciple who lived to be an old man. All the other disciples were martyred for for their faith, but but the Lord persevered John into old age. And by the time he writes the book of Revelation, he is a prisoner. He is exiled to an island called Patmos, and there the Lord visits him in a vision. This is the same John who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the same John. John, who wrote the Gospel of John. This is the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is that John, and he writes Revelation, and, and he gives us probably our best picture of what heaven will be like. And again, it's just a nibble because we can't really conceive it. John couldn't even really conceive it. He was just trying to write down with his limited vocabulary what it is or was that God was showing him. You know, Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, and if you're a believer, eternal life is in your future. And even though no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those of us who believe, John gives us a little nibble, and it sounds fantastic. It's just a little taste, but it seems amazing. If you turn over to page 467, we're going to start our reading right there this morning. If you um, have a storybook, that's where we're going to be. If you just have your Bible open, this will be Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. John gives us a little glimpse of what he's seeing about heaven. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Do you capture that language? If you've been with us, didn't Jesus tell a lot of parables about the end of time and about the bride and the bridegroom and the great feast and all of those things that were to come? John is referencing that. So I saw a beautifully dressed bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. John is making a reference to what has always been God's desire to be with his people. And John sees this vision of what heaven will be like where God is with his people like he's always wanted We get a little taste. We're together with God for all eternity. If it goes on to keep reading, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So John, seeing all of these things that are prepared for those who have followed Christ. And again, let me just reference. Do you remember how the story begins? God was wanting to be with people, walked daily with Adam and Eve, had fellowship, no separation. And John sees in the end heaven, God walking with his creation, no separation and fellowship. The book of Revelation is ending like it was beginning. And God's dreams 
are coming into reality. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this. I've done this, and it makes me a little bit dizzy, to be quite honest with you, but have you ever sat back in your lazy boy chair, if you got one of those, or just laying in bed, and you close your eyes and you go, what will heaven be like? What does all eternity really feel like? It makes me dizzy to think about that because I'm confined by times, starts, ends, days, months, count. I'm confined, but when you start to think, a million years from now, I'll still be around. A billion years from There is no end. It's eternity. It goes on forever, forever, forever. Friends, I, I get a little dizzy thinking about it. Maybe that's why Paul said no mind can really conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. So since it's hard for me to conceive what that is like, I have a better time um, understanding what heaven won't be like. Sometimes you, you got to look at the opposite. So if it's hard to conceive what all will be there, well, what do we know won't be there? So let's talk about that for just a minute. Let's talk about what won't be in heaven um, that we know about. One of the best things about heaven is this. Satan won't be there. That's one of the best things about heaven. Satan won't be there. And this means that we will never again be bothered with temptation. Now, can you imagine a world? It's hard to do this because temptation's all around us. But can you actually imagine a world where the chief tempter is not around and temptation is not present? It will be gone forever. Can you imagine the joy that would come from never be tempted to do wrong again? I remember when I was about 12 or 13 years of age, the movie Top Gun came out. Do you remember that movie? Top Gun? And Tom Cruise, fighter pilot, and all that stuff, super realistic. And um, anyway, I wanted to be a fighter pilot in the worst way back then. I, I dreamed about it. I had the posters. I had built the models. I mean, and so when this movie came out, I was like, I got to see this movie. All of my friends were going to go see it. And so I went to my parents, and I begged them, please, can I go watch Top Gun? And they're like, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of bad language in that movie and the stuff. And I was like, oh, please, 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 please. You, you know how it is. Do you have a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, you really want something from me, parents? You know what it's like, right? It's relentless. And I was relentless. And, and I was pleased. And so finally, they thought about it, and they came back to me, and they said, you know what, Joe? We've decided that we're going to let you watch Top Gun with your friends. We're going to let you go Friday night with them. However, it's our understanding that there is one scene in the movie where the two main characters go to bed together and they're not married. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, our expectation is that when that scene comes on, you will cover your eyes. <laughs> and I was kind of, and I'm like, you got it. You know, I was like, scouts, absolutely. But I, I respect my parents, so I want to, so here, if you can imagine, there's me, this whole row of like 12 and 13-year-old boys, and our parents had dropped us off, and we're at the movies, and that scene comes up, and, and all of my friends are like, <laughs> and I am like this. I mean, I'm serious. I was like this. Actually, it was more like this, and um, <laughs> to be honest with you, it was more like this. Why was it so important to my parents that I not see those things? It's because they, far better than I at that age, understood temptation. They understood suggestive images. They understood emotions of a 13-year-old boy 
They understood what some of these things often lead to in the heart and mind of a young man who is curious. That's why, because the tempter is real, and they knew all about it. Can you imagine a world where you don't have to worry about it? That's heaven. There's no temptation. So you don't have to worry about filth, sexual immorality, lying, cheating, fighting. Anything that this world can throw at us to tempt us to sin will not be there. So heaven will be like that. The Bible says that God is going to lift the curse. Revelation chapter 22 verse 3 says that there will no longer be any curse. What is that a reference to? That's a reference to something from chapter 1 in Genesis chapter 3 when God, because of sin, he cursed the earth. That's why we die. That's why there's thorns. That's why there's things that get destroyed. That's why there's diseases. There's, you know, friends, there's things that happen even to this day. There is no explanation for it except we live in a cursed place. And God is going to lift that curse curse. So everything that is broken as a result of sin will be mended in a sense. The curse will be lifted. John said that in this new place, he saw the need for no more temple. There was no temple there. And why is that an important detail? We're kind of lost on that detail because we live in the 21st century. We're Americans living in northwest Arkansas. And so the temple doesn't quite have the impact. But let me tell you how somebody in John's day would have understood this when he said there was no temple there. Temples were used for what? Animal sacrifice. It was the place where you brought your sacrifice and where your sins were atoned for. And by John saying there was no temple, do you understand what he's saying? There was no need for sacrifice because there's no sins to be atoned for. So there's no need for any temple. And they would have understood that very clearly. And and they would also have understood that in the temple, there was a series of divisions. How close could you get to God? God was separated. There were divisions among people. And when he says there's no more temple, there have been no more sins to be forgiven, no more divisions, nothing that's going to block us from God. That's what heaven is going to be like. That's what he's trying to describe for us. He also says that there will be no more sea. S-E-A, sea. And you think about why would he say that? I mean, is is he making a reference? Are there not going to be any oceans in heaven? I mean, I I, I don't know. I can't really conceive what's going to be there. But what he's talking about is what the sea represented. See, in in John's day, the sea was a scary place. See, we didn't have have satellites and navigation systems. You know, they couldn't predict storms coming up. And, you know, they couldn't be guided by all these, you know, fancy things we have now. You get in a boat and you head off across the sea, oftentimes you're never seen again. It's a scary place. So in a broad sense, in heaven, all fear is removed. That's what he's talking about. Fear is gone. There's no more sea. This thing that represents the greatest fear known to people, the sea, where people go out and never come back, the fear will be removed. So if you think about these little details that John is sharing with us that won't be there, so Satan won't be there, neither will temptation or sin, the curse of everything that's broken will be lifted. God will dwell with us. He will be our God. We will be his people. There'll be no separation from him, no need for a temple because there's no sins, nothing to be forgiven, and all fear is gone. Sounds pretty awesome to me. It's hard to conceive it. But I can start to little get, get a little glimpse when I think about what won't be there. 
So it's going to be fantastic. This place that John is describing is where God comes down out of the lower story and intersects, or upper story, and intersects with our, our lower story. It's going to be like he originally planned it again. So as we finish the story today and we wrap things up this entire series, as I, you know, read this, maybe you've done the same, and I, I read the last words on the last page and I close this and I ask the question, why does it matter? Lord, what do you want me to know from this? What are my takeaways? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, friends, that's a long list. But there are three takeaways from the entire story that just resonate in my heart, and I want to share those with you today because I think it's the three takeaways we uh, significantly need to focus on this morning. And the first one is this. When I close the story and I put it down and I'm like, what do I need to take away from this? I take this truth away. This fact. Everyone will stand before God one day. That becomes very clear to me when I read the word. Every single one of us We'll stand before the Lord. And it doesn't matter how much money you made in this world. It won't matter what kind of cars you drive and the houses you live and the places you've gone and the things you've done and the accomplish, accomplishments you've had. We will all stand before the Lord. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After I looked, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard or had heard, first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. He saw Jesus sitting on his throne as the ultimate leader. And friends, we too, one day, every single last one of us will be standing before this throne that John sees as well. Paul tells us a little bit about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now let me tell you something, friends. For the unbeliever, this will be the worst moment of their existence. It will not be a good moment. It's going to be a moment where they will weep and mourn over the poor choices they made in this life. And most importantly, they will weep and mourn over the fact that when they had a chance to follow Christ, they didn't. But for the believer, it will be a completely different experience. It's Jesus Christ, he will vouch for you. He will recognize you. He will say, God, they're with me. The Holy Spirit marks their life. They're with us. And that will be an exciting day. Here's the deal. That day when we stand before the Lord, that day when we draw our last breath here on earth, and, and let me tell you what I think about that. I believe it will be an instantaneous journey that when you take your last breath on earth, you will instantaneously take your first breath in the presence of God. It's like a blink. You will close your eyes on this life and open it up into eternity. It will be that quick, and you'll be there. The Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So you leave this, and you go to the next, and and, and, and we will stand before the Lord. And that moment, what happens next, is 100% dependent 
on the choices we make before we take our last breath on earth. Erwin Lutzer is the name of a minister. He's written a lot of books. He, he wrote a book a few years ago called One Minute After You Die, and he explored what the Bible says about, hey, what's it like that first minute in heaven, that first minute with God? And in the introduction of, this, of his book, he writes this, and I agree with it 100%. He says, one minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, that's his way of describing death, one minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you will either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you have never known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. It matters how you live today. It matters what you choose in this life. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said this about it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Do you know we're just passers-by? In a lot of ways, we are just kind of wanderers through this world. The Bible speaks all the time about how this is not our home. Our citizenship is actually someplace else. The language the Bible uses, we are strangers. We are aliens in this place. Because our citizenship, once we become believers, we're marked by the Spirit. And our citizenship is in the next place. It is in heaven. And from the moment we choose to believe and follow Jesus, we are not living any longer for what this world has to offer. We're living for what the next world has to offer. So we are not... So we are strangers here. Our citizenship is, is somewhere else. So I want to tell you something. Don't miss heaven for the world. Don't miss heaven for the world. So that's my first takeaway. We're all going to stand before God one day. Second takeaway is this. God will keep his word. God will keep his word. From the very beginning of the story, God has never once detoured from his desire to redeem the world from their sin. And, and the book of Revelation is where, like I said a minute ago, we see his upper story intersecting with the lower story. It's where it all comes into completion when we get to heaven and, and, and God's promises come true. And there we are with him without sin, without blemish, walking with him in eternity like it was in the garden. And I know that's, that's really, really exciting news. When we get to heaven... God says there's several, several promises that he will keep. And one of those promises is this. We will all get a new body. I'm excited about that. I don't know exactly what it will be like, but I think it will look something like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime and uh, Brad Pitt's hair. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I'm kidding. I don't know what that will be like. But the Bible speaks of, of this body, the ones that we have abused the ones that carry the marks of our poor choices, the ones that are destined to be cursed with the world. The Bible says they're tents that we will shed. And God will give us a new body in heaven. And I'm excited about that. Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies. And that's a way of saying our broken, sinful, marked by sin bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. God will keep that promise. Here's another promise that God will keep. 
It says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. I don't know, but I would imagine there are plenty of you that are tired of crying, tired of mourning, tired of going to funerals, tired of taking medication for your aches and pains, tired. And a promise that he keeps to us is he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Kenny Bowles, who's a professor at Ozark Christian College, brilliant man, wrote a book on heaven, and in that book he says this, we live in a world where there is constant threat of pain. From our mother's pain in childbirth to our children's pain at a funeral, there is pain. In heaven, there's no more pain or mourning or sadness, and he'll wipe all those tears away. In heaven, here's another promise, there will only be joy because in the, lo- in the absence of pain and mourning and loss and sin, the flip side of that is joy and happiness. It will be an unimaginable joy. And here's the one that I think I'm looking forward to the most. It's being with all of those people who have gone on before us and has passed away and is in heaven right now waiting to be reunited with us. And you want to talk about joy. When you get to be with those who you said goodbye to years and years and years ago, who died in their faith, and then they're going to welcome you into eternity, and it'll be like a long-lost reunion and joy, and it will be complete happiness. There's a promise coming that heaven will be like that. Here's my third takeaway. As I read this, and I close it, and I put it down, there is this uh, overarching truth that is inescapable, When you read God's word, it's this. You need to be ready. That's it. You need to be ready. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So there's a clear line being drawn in the sand in the book of Revelation. Believers are victorious. Be ready. If you're not ready, it's doom and gloom. And I think that maybe that's why people think Revelation is scary. No, I think it's victorious. So how do you know if you're ready? And I think, you know, I think that's probably a question that maybe is hovering over our church today. As as many people have come and joined us and are learning and growing, how do I know if I'm ready? Well, can I just outline it for you briefly in Scripture? You take, what does the New Testament say about being ready so that you know that when you stand before the Lord, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, come on in. How do you know you're ready? It starts right here. Are you ready? You got to believe. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him. Now, what marks belief? I believe that God loved me so much that he stepped out of heaven and he walked among this planet, among his creation, and that he died on the cross for our sins. Not only that he died, but I believe with all my heart that he came back from the dead and rose to life three days later and is alive today. That is the foundation of what we believe. All who believe 
will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so you start with this question, what do I believe? And friends, I'm going to tell you something. Nobody can believe unless they are exposed to the truth. And that's why every single weekend we say, invite your friends. Come, bring them, those that believe and don't believe. Because we believe in sharing and exposing and give people an opportunity to decide, do I believe or not. That's why we encourage you all the time to share your faith as God gives you the opportunity so that people have an opportunity to believe. Because when you're exposed to the truth, you have two choices, believe or reject. Many people reject, but a lot believe. So what do people who believe this message, what do they do? Well, there's an awareness. Jesus died for me, and without him, I'm lost. And I was a part of that, and I need to repent. So I believe and I repent of my sins. It's as simple as going down to your knee and just saying, Father, I am so sorry for my sins. Please forgive me in a humble heart. God blesses the humble. He gives grace to them, but he opposes the proud. So only humble people repent. So you believe and you repent. What else? Believers, here's what they did. They confessed Christ as Lord. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my heavenly Father. And so when somebody goes into the baptistry, we ask everyone the same question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're choosing to make him your personal Lord and Savior? They're in there because they believe that, but they're also professing and confessing to anyone who will listen. So I believe, and I tell God I'm sorry for my sins, and I make him my leader, and then I unite with him in baptism. It says in Romans 6, for all those who have been baptized into Christ have been united with Christ. And if you've been united with Christ in baptism, you'll also be raised with Christ at the resurrection. So we unite with Christ in baptism. We identify with him that way. We publicly shout out, this is my pledge of a good conscience towards God, and it's a recognition my sins are washed away. So I unite with him, and I let the whole world know about it. And then I walk with Jesus. So am I ready? I would just ask you this. Do you believe? Have you repented of your sins? Have you made Jesus your leader? Have you united with him in baptism? And are you following him daily? It doesn't mean you're going to live a perfect life. I've sinned more after my baptism than before. But we have God's grace. We're sealed forever because of our belief and our faith. And it's like, I got you. My grace covers that. You're still my family. Let me end with this. Jesus makes all this possible that I'm talking about. I want to end with a story that Max Lucado shares. Max Lucado's name is on the front of your storybook. He helped arrange the scriptures that go in here. Obviously, he didn't write the Bible. He arranged it. But he's a fantastic preacher, and he's an incredible author. And he shares this story from when he was a teenager, and I, I can't tell it better than he writes it, so I'm just going to read it to you. It means a lot to me. He said, Joe Albright is a fair and fearless West Texas rancher, a square-jawed, raw-boned man with a neck by Rawlings. In Andrews County, where I was raised, everyone knew him. One of Joe's sons, James, and I were best friends in high school. We played football together. Where, more honestly, he played and I guarded the team bench. One Friday night, after an out-of-town game, James invited me to stay at his house for the night. By the time we reached his, his property, the ranch, the hour was way past midnight, and he had not told his father that he was bringing anybody home. 
Mr. Albright did not know me, and he did not know my vehicle, so when I stepped out of the car in front of his house, he popped on a floodlight and aimed it right at my face. Through the glare, I saw this block of a man. I think he was in his underwear, too. And I heard his deep voice, who are you? I gulped. My mind moved at the speed of cold honey. And I started to say my name, but I couldn't get it out. But then James jumped out of the car. He interceded. It's okay, Dad. That's my friend Max. He's with me. The light went off, and Mr. Albright threw open the front door and said, Well then, come on in, boys. Food is in the kitchen. What changed, Max asked. What made Mr. Albright flip off the light? One fact, one reason only. I had aligned myself with his son. My sudden safety had nothing to do with my accomplishments or my offerings. It was because I knew his son, period. Jesus Christ paid a huge price so that we could be in heaven with him. So, what do you believe? Who have you aligned yourself with?